Acts chapter 24, verses 14 through 21. This morning we are considering our seventh and final Christian essential. Remember that we have spent six Sundays, that's one Sunday and one doctrine a month, looking at teachings that every Christian in every age has held as essential, regardless of denominational affiliation. To be within the bounds of historic Christianity and to be on firm biblical ground, these essential teachings are necessary for you as an individual and for us as a church to cling. What is essential when it comes to future events is holding a biblical view of three related areas. Those are the future return of Christ, the future resurrection of all humanity, and the future restoration of creation. And we can put all these together under the heading, Resurrection and Restoration. I did not plan this, but where we are currently in our reading in Acts coincides with this final Christian essential. So therefore, we will reconsider part of a passage we looked at last week, that is Acts chapter 24, starting in verse 14. And as I read our text, I want you to listen for the importance that Paul places upon a future resurrection. Acts 24, verse 14. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them. For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. This is the word of the Lord. As Paul stands trial for his life, he offers a defense to the charges that have been brought against him. Recall that he's been accused of sedition and sectarianism and desecration of the temple. But of course, the, the primary reason that Paul has upset the unbelieving Jews is because he preaches Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. No Jewish person understood that the Messiah, before he came the first time, would be crucified and rise from the dead. That was not understood. Mark chapter 9, verses 31 through 32 read, For he, that is Jesus, was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they, that is the disciples, did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Many Jews 
particularly the Pharisees, believed in a future resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. And Paul, he taps into this central idea in verse 15 when he says, I have hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. What is Paul doing? He's building on this accepted idea of resurrection to demonstrate that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. In fact, he reminds everyone present at his Roman trial before Felix what he had already proclaimed to the Sanhedrin back in Jerusalem. Verse 21, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. In Paul's view, the resurrection is the hinge point. Everything turns upon it. If there will be a future resurrection of all humanity, and Jesus rose physically from the dead, then every human being will be judged according to what they did with Jesus Christ. And this sets us up to consider the first fact, that is, the physical return of Jesus Christ. Remember, we're talking about essentials here. The physical return of Jesus Christ. After his resurrection, we read in Luke chapter 24, verse 36, that Jesus himself, he stood in their midst, that is the midst of the disciples, and he said to them, peace be to you. What was their reaction? Well, verse 37 of Luke 24 reads, but they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. You see, there's this common belief among, among first century Jews that a person who had died was somehow alive between bodily death and bodily resurrection. And in this belief, they, they thought that occasionally they would get a glimpse of this intermediary state. Now, if that sounds like something you've heard before, if you remember back in Acts chapter 12, verse 15, when Peter is in prison and Christians are gathered together to pray for him, after he was released, before they knew he was released, and he came knocking on the door, they thought he was already dead. They thought he'd been executed by Herod. And so they kept saying, before they opened the door, it is his angel. Or we might say, his spirit. That's that belief in action. So after Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples thought they were seeing Jesus' spirit. But in fact, they were seeing much more. Central to the Christian faith is that Jesus physically rose from the dead. This idea was unheard of. Yes, again, there was a belief in a future bodily resurrection, but no one suspected the Messiah would rise before that future time. But to assure them that he was in a physical body, Jesus said, Luke 24, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet. That It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. To prove it further, Jesus then asked them for something to eat. Verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Spirits don't eat. Jesus rose from the dead physically. He was in a resurrected body. Yes. And there were not the time, space, limitations on his new body. 
like there was in his previous one. He could suddenly appear in one place and then just as suddenly appear in another. But it was a physical body. One way to think about it is that Jesus' body it belonged to two different dimensions at one time. It belonged to both heaven and earth. There is coming a day when earth and heaven will be merged into a new creation and then we will have resurrected physical bodies that do not follow the same rules as these present bodies. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Here's Jesus in a physical resurrected body for 40 days. He walked among people. Hundreds of witnesses saw him. But keep in mind, and this is something that's often overlooked, Jesus' body, though it was in the grave for three days, it did not begin to decompose during that time. How do we know that? Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Jesus' new body was a transformation of his old body. No decomposition took place. Our new bodies, on the other hand, our old ones having decomposed will be completely new creations. After those 40 days, wherein hundreds of witnesses saw Jesus in this resurrected state, what did he do? He ascended into heaven. A lot of scripture I'm giving you today. We walk through some of these things. So listen to what the two angels, the two men dressed in white, said to his disciples as they stared in this awestruck wonder into the sky. We read this back in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to the sky? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Don't miss what they're saying here. Jesus will return how? In just the same way. How did he go to heaven? He ascended physically. Therefore, he's going to return from heaven physically. In fact, as I mentioned, when we considered the person and the work of Christ, Jesus not only rose in a physical body, he will have a physical body for all eternity. Paul goes on to confirm the bodily return of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. It will not be a spirit descending from heaven. It will not be an invisible return. The Lord Jesus Christ himself will descend in physical form. And to further confirm the physical nature of this return, Revelation 1-7 reads, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. We don't understand how every single eye on earth is going to see the bodily return of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we don't understand how Jesus' new resurrected body moved in a supernatural way. But it did. So first of all, Jesus will return as judge. Jesus will return as judge. 
This is what Paul alludes to in Acts 24.15. There shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Paul is even more explicit about this when he preaches in Athens, back in Acts 17.30. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. All of humanity will be judged through Jesus Christ. The proof of this fact is that God raised Jesus bodily from the dead. And you hear the connection between Jesus' resurrection, his return, and judgment day. If you ever wondered why it matters to your Christian experience that Jesus rose from the dead, this is one of the reasons. Future resurrection points to future judgment. We will all be raised to give an account. The return of Jesus Christ is just as sure as the judgment. And Jesus will be the judge. Now, there are different interpretations as to when this final judgment will occur. It all depends on how you view the the thousand-year reign of Christ, a topic that I'm not going to delve into this morning. But one thing that all Christians agree on, and they believe because the Bible teaches it, is that Jesus will return physically, and there will be a final judgment with him sitting as judge. This is the role that Jesus played in the parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 24. A parable designed, like every parable, to teach us something about reality. In this case, what is to come? But when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Ultimate judgment is placed in the hands of Jesus. And this is what Jesus Himself confirms in John 5.22. For not even the Father judges anyone but he has given all judgment to the Son. And this judge will sit on his glorious throne, which leads us to a second fact. Jesus will return as king. Jesus will return as judge, first of all, but secondly, Jesus will return as king. Revelation 19.11 describes Jesus' return like this. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Judges render verdicts. Kings lead troops into battle. We go on to read in verse 16 of Revelation 19. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This dual role of king and judge is typical of ancient rulers. Remember how David, King David, he heard cases in Israel. He acted as a judge. Solomon, of course, exercising his God-given wisdom by deciding those particularly difficult cases. Ancient kings 
acted as judges, and so will King Jesus. Whereas Jesus Christ as judge means that he alone will separate the righteous from the wicked and decide sentencing, Jesus Christ as king tells us that his verdict is binding. The king has the final say. The king is owed more than just deference because he executes justice. The king is also owed absolute loyalty. Philippians 2, 9-10 reads, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every single human being who has ever lived, those already in the presence of God, those who will be alive at His return, and those under the earth, separated from His love, will bow the knee before King Jesus. Some will bow voluntarily, and some will bow under compulsion, but all will bow to King Jesus. Reflecting on the bodily return of Jesus Christ is sobering. It matters when you share the gospel with others. It is a reminder that we will all give an account. It is a reminder that today matters. What you do today matters. Nothing will be lost. No evil deed is going to go unpunished. No wrong will be left unresolved. Everything is going to be put right. There will be no loose ends. And this is a great comfort to those who long for King Jesus to execute justice. But it's also a great concern for those who hope the idea of Judgment Day is only a myth. But it's not. And as judge, Jesus will ensure that justice is carried out in its totality. As king, Jesus will ensure that every created being bows the knee. Some in praise and adoration, others in fear and trepidation. But all will recognize him as king. The bodily return of Jesus is the hope of the Christian and the dread of the unbeliever. Christians have always clung to the doctrine that Jesus will return physically and sit as judge. And if you believe this, it will affect how you live today. This is why the future return of Jesus ensures the physical resurrection of all humanity. The physical resurrection of all humanity. Hebrews 9.27 reads, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Every human being who is born will die. Physical death is a result of sin. Sin brings death. Every human being will stand before the Lord in judgment. 
There are differing views of exactly when this judgment will occur, but the when is not essential. One thing every Christian believes or agrees upon, according to what is clear in Scripture, is there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous for a great final judgment. Listen to the words of Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and all were judged, every one of them, and they were judged according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Notice how we will be raised physically. We've already seen from Scripture that Jesus' resurrected body was physical. The resurrected bodies of Christians will be physical as well. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. What does that tell us? That tells us our bodies will be like Jesus' body. Jesus' body is now physical, so will ours be. However, the body of a Christian will be in conformity with the body of His glory, which means that our bodies will be different than they are now. Physical, yes, but physical bodies that are suited for eternal life, recreated for existence in the future when heaven and earth are merged. 1 Corinthians 15, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And when will this transformation occur? At the coming of Jesus Christ. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. That's the case for the righteous dead. What about the unrighteous dead? Well, they will also be raised physically. They will not receive resurrected bodies. They will not receive the glorified spiritual bodies that are only the inheritance of believers, of Christians, but they will be raised physically to stand in judgment. Paul confirms this in our text in Acts chapter 24, verse 15. There shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. To be consistent with how the Bible uses the word resurrection, the righteous and the wicked will physically experience it. So what will occur at the final judgment of which no man or woman can avoid? First, unbelievers will be judged. Unbelievers will be judged. How will they be judged? Every word 
will be taken into account. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Every deed will be taken into account. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Every thought will be taken into account. Romans 2.16, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Every word, every deed, every thought will be taken into account. According to the standard of God, which is holy perfection, no one will be justified before God. Their thoughts, their words, their deeds will rightly condemn them on the day of judgment. Unless you wonder if people will get away with anything. No, they will not. Judgment will be based on what the individual did or did not do. And there will be degrees of punishment. I read earlier in Revelation 20 that the dead were judged according to their deeds. Though hell is the fate of all the unrighteous, there will be varying levels of punishment based on how one lived his or her life. That is the teaching of Scripture. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but we can trust in God's perfect justice. The testimony of Scripture is that there is none righteous, not even one. In Romans 3, 19-20, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. If there is none righteous before God, and there is not, then all are unrighteous. The destination for those who die in their sins and rise again to give an account for those sins is a place the Bible calls hell. Jesus describes it, describes hell as a state where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus describes people who go there as being bound hand and foot and thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus tells in Luke 16, the rich man calls out from Hades, the place of the unrighteous dead, saying, send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. All of this descriptive language, spoken by Jesus, by the way, tells us some key facts about hell. It is a place where a person is conscious of his surroundings and conscious of his condition. It is eternal. 
Those who end up there are separated from the love and the light of God. There is no hope. There is no peace. There is only endless thirst. Thirst is a physical sensation for water. Soul thirst is a longing for fellowship with God. God who is the source of all joy and all contentment. A longing that will never be filled. Those who reject the worship of God in this life are really choosing to worship themselves. A person in hell becomes endlessly absorbed with himself or herself until there is nothing left but misery and despair because that is where self-love ultimately leads. This is the fate of the unrighteous dead. It's not fun to talk about, but we do need to be reminded of it. So what about the fate of the righteous? In writing to the Christians in Rome, Paul said, Romans 14.10, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul wrote that to believers. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.10, he also writes to Christians, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. While the unrighteous will be punished according to their deeds, the righteous will be rewarded according to theirs. Stick with me here. You see, we will all give an account. The difference is that those who are condemned will suffer for their sins. And those who are rewarded will not. You see, by the time you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the final judgment, your fate will already have been decided. It is only punishment or rewards that will be determined then. Your fate on judgment day is decided today. In this life, you choose your fate. It's not according to what you have done or not done or will do. Salvation is not as a result of works so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2.8. We've already seen that nobody is righteous before God. The only reason you have any hope, the only reason you have any chance, the only reason that you will have confidence before the King of kings and Lord of lords, the judge of all the earth on that great and final day is because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for you. God loves you. God does not want your deeds to eternally condemn you. And so he sent his son to receive on the cross the punishment that you earned. God raised Jesus from the dead to make you acceptable before Him. You will only stand forgiven on the day of judgment because Jesus was condemned in your place. You will only stand justified by God because Jesus was separated from God's love in death on the cross. Jesus tasted hell so that you do not have to thirst for an eternity. 
the reason that anyone will stand in the judgment, if they stand in the judgment, is because their name will be found in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 21, 27. And your name is inscribed there the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, turning to God in repentance. This is why Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. You will not come into judgment then if you pass out of spiritual death into life now. And that is a matter of faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Acts 16.31 By the time you stand before the Lord in judgment, your fate has already been determined. And that's up to you. You see, the accounting a Christian will give before the throne is not to determine if he or she will be saved. Because by that moment, you're either saved or you're not. If across your name is stamped, declared righteous, then your eternal future is secure. The recompense for your deeds in the body, according to what you have done as a Christian, will determine the degree to which you receive eternal rewards. And so does it matter how a Christian lives? Of course it does. How you live your Christian life will be evaluated. Now you will not come into condemnation because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you and I, we will certainly be evaluated. And only the deeds done from right motives flowing out of a regenerated heart, deeds that are wrought by faith through the Spirit, only those deeds will endure. And the rest will burn up. I read this passage earlier, 1 Corinthians 3. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed by fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Those are words from the Apostle Paul to Christians. And this is why the sheep in Jesus' parable will be commended for their deeds. It appears at first glance as you read that parable that their deeds will actually be the reason they hear come you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. But in reality, their deeds flowed from their faith. What you do, what you say, what you think, will either give evidence that you are a child of God, or reveal that you are not. This is why the goats will be condemned by their lack of feeding the poor, their lack of clothing the naked, their lack of visiting the prisoner, their lack of compassion and action will simply reveal a lack of saving faith. So what comes after the final judgment? The physical restoration of creation. 
the physical restoration of creation. The resurrection of Jesus was a physical resurrection. Your resurrection will be physical. And those who inherit the kingdom of God will enter into a physical reality. And this is so often missed or glossed over when we talk about life after death for the Christian. But listen to a few statements from Revelation 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The Apostle John, the writer of Revelation, he attempts to put into words what the Lord is showing to him, attempting to use words to describe something that really is so glorious they don't have words to describe them. But one thing is abundantly clear. Even as words can never do justice to this coming reality, the future will be physical. There will be a real city and real people, a real river, real trees of life. And if all this sounds familiar, it's because it is. As it will be at the end, it was at the beginning. The last two chapters of the Bible, they reach back into the imagery of the first chapter, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. What is coming in the future for God's people is restoration. A restoring of what was lost. What was lost when Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden will be regained by the people of God. Adam and Eve, they walked with the Lord in the garden. We will walk with Him in the new Jerusalem. He will dwell among them. The Garden of Eden, it was a temple of sorts. It was a place of worship. It was where God chose to dwell with man. The whole city that's coming will be a place of worship. There will be no temple, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. God will dwell with His people in a fullness unknown in this life, a fullness that was not even experienced in Eden. We do an injustice about what's to come when we think that after we die, we will go to some distant, hazy, undefined place called heaven where you will float about and sing hymns all day. Don't get me wrong. We will worship. But just like you offering your body as a living sacrifice is what the Bible calls worship in this life, so everything you will do in the life to come will be an act of worship in a resurrected body, in the presence of God. 
you will sing. Yeah, you'll sing, but you will also fellowship. And you will also work. And you will also enjoy eternal life. It will be an existence in a whole new dimension at God's right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. But it will still be a very real, very physical existence. The moment the people of God are set free to enjoy the new heaven merging with the new earth will be the moment that all creation is also set free. Romans 8, 19-21 For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All that is wrong with the creation now, all that is wrong because of the effects of sin, the thorns, the thistles, the destructive weather patterns, the way nature often works against us instead of for us, all of that will be transformed. Romans 8.23 And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Did you catch that? Your adoption as a child of God will be complete when your physical body is redeemed. Why is it so important that we grasp the physical nature of what's to come? It's important because God did not create us as disembodied spirits, nor will we be disembodied spirits in eternity. Your soul and your spirit and your body, they will all be redeemed together. And this means, this means that the life to come is not only a new beginning, but an extension of your life now. Yes, everything will be made new, but nothing will be forgotten. What you do today matters. Not only does it matter because you must make a choice to follow Jesus in this life, it matters because you will still be you. The degree to which you serve God in this life will be reflected in the life to come. The character that God is forming in you now will be consummated at the return of the Lord. And we cannot separate this life from eternity. Yes, it's true. No one who is in Christ will come into condemnation. They will not. And yes, it's true. The sanctifying work that is not finished now will be completed then. And yes, it's true. 1 John 3.1 or 3.2 You will be like Him because you will see Him just as He is. But don't miss what is also true. The next verse, 1 John 3.3 And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. The hope you set on what's to come, the hope of restoration, drives you to purify yourself today. 
everyone will give an account before King Jesus. If you belong to him because you have chosen to believe in him, then you will not be condemned on that final day, but you will be evaluated. In some grand and eternal sense, the degree to which you and I walk in purity today matters forever. Now, this does not mean that we get lost in our grief over what we cannot change in the past. As a Christian, you are fully loved and fully accepted. But it does mean that we live in light of the reality of what's to come. We live in light of the fullness of what's to come, beside which everything now is but a dim shadow. And it also means by God's grace and by God's provision that you purify yourself as He is pure. Those that will enjoy the fullness of the presence of God in eternity are those who enjoy His presence in their lives now. If the thought of the nearness of God today is not a delight to you, I wonder if it will be a delight to you in the new creation. In anticipation of the unhindered access that you will have to God's throne, unhindered by the world, unhindered by your flesh, unhindered by the devil, in anticipation of that coming reality, are you living as if the restored creation is already breaking into your life now? You should be. I should be. Because it already is. And so let's live in light of it. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we've considered an essential core teaching of your word that Jesus is coming back, that there will be a final judgment, that you will restore creation and make all things new. We are reminded this morning to live in light of that. So Father, we just ask that you would help us to do so. Help us to anticipate it with joy, but help us to be sober-minded as we realize that nothing is ever really lost that everything will be redeemed. And the Lord, the life to come, eternal life, it, it begins now. So we need your help, Father, to live in such a way that glorifies you. And so that when we give an account before you, before the Lord Jesus, we will be able to hold our heads up high because, Lord, we allowed you to work in our lives in this moment. So we ask this in Jesus' name. We ask for this help. Amen.